If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 9. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, um, page 814 uh, is where you're going to find today's, today's text. Uh, we are, um, I guess, rapidly approaching now the end uh, of this series that we've been in for the last month and a half or so called Rhythms of Grace. Uh, and this morning we're going to look at this particular rhythm of grace that we call Mission. Uh, there's a lot of ground that, that I'm hopeful we'll be able to cover this morning, and so uh, let's just dive right into the Word of God, right into our text this morning. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love, Matthew chapter 9, I'll start in verse 35 and read through verse 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have declared And Jesus, this was the beginning of your ministry, that the kingdom of God is among us. And so we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it, that you would open our hearts to hold it, and our hands to serve it. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of these few verses from Matthew 9, four things that we'll look at today about mission. Missions means... Missions motive, missions math, missions mandate. I'm winning lots of brownie points among pastors that do alliterations this morning for all the M's. I just wanted to make sure you didn't miss that. I worked really hard to make them all M's this morning. Um, And my name's Matt, so I really like the letter M. (laughs) So first, let's talk about missions means. Missions means. Uh, Mission and missional uh, if, you, if you've been part of the church for about the past decade, even a couple decades, these are buzzwords uh, in the American church. And applied to almost everything, they can begin to mean nothing or almost nothing. So as we consider mission as a rhythm of grace, as we establish this as one of nine rhythms and pursuits of faithful discipleship, we really need to begin by, by sharing a definition, by sharing a framework, what is mission? And the starting point for that is to understand that the God we worship is a missional God. God is a missional God. And first and foremost, the mission that we are talking about is God's mission. Christopher Wright, uh, a phenomenal Old Testament scholar, uh, one who's been involved in mobilizing the church for both local and global mission, he writes about how he used to uh, look through the Bible and he was looking for verses that would be a biblical basis for mission. But what he actually found when he studied the Bible, when he read through the text cover to cover of Scripture, is that it wasn't that there were these collection of proof texts that gave a basis for mission, but that from beginning to end, Scripture, as God's revelation of himself, is about the mission of God. And his eyes were open to see that, that God is from beginning to end as he reveals himself a missional God. He is doing work in the world. And the scope of that mission as we read scripture is enormous. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, God is reconciling the world to himself. 
it's, so it's a reconciliation of several things. It's a reconciliation of people. Uh, it's a reconciliation of places. It's a reconciliation of pursuits. It's really a reconciliation of all that our rebellion as humanity, all of our rebellion, the fall and the sin that has affected all of God's creation, it's a reconciliation of all that that has sought to destroy. These few verses in Matthew's gospel, they point to the means of this mission in a couple different ways. For one, and primarily, these verses give us a glimpse of Jesus, who is the clearest evidence and the means of God's mission. The incarnation, the earthly ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the epitome of God as a missional God. And so as we consider this rhythm of mission and what that's going to look like in our lives, there's no proper framework for our pursuit of mission apart from first understanding the person and work of Jesus. From the moment that sin entered the world, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God promised that his mission would be to redeem and to rescue his people. And so he set out, and we read this through the pages of the Old Testament, he set out to reveal people's sin and to reveal their need for rescue. He chose a people through whom all of the nations, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. He established practices of sacrifice to show us our need for a substitute to pay the cost of sin in our place. He established a line of kings over his people to show us, to reveal to us our need for a greater king. He established a line of priests to show us our need for a mediator between God and humanity. He established prophets that would herald the coming kingdom of God and would call people to break up the hardness of their hearts and to faithfully follow after this God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. We worship Jesus as our prophet and as our priest and as our king. He is the one through whom God is reconciling the world to himself. Ultimately, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that accomplishes this work. And we can never replicate that part in our pursuit of mission, nor are we meant to. We are not meant to be Jesus or to do the work that Jesus uniquely can do. But what we see in Jesus in his own life, in his earthly example, is that before he goes to the cross, before he rises from the grave, there are means of Jesus' mission that we can and should replicate. What are they? What we read in Matthew 9, 35-38, is that we are to both proclaim and to enact the kingdom of God. To proclaim and to enact the kingdom of God. And this is really the comprehensive nature of God's mission. Verse 35 says that as Jesus went through all of these cities and towns, he both proclaimed the gospel and healed every disease and every affliction. So the mission of God in the world involves both word and deed. It involves both telling the good news of what God has done and showing or enacting that good news by living faithfully in ways that mirror the grace of God and that serve as a real blessing to people. So if you're familiar with the church, if you've been in the church or grown up in the church, it's common for us to use words like evangelism to talk about the word side, the telling side of the gospel, uh, and words like service or mercy or justice to describe the deed side of that. But all of that is part of mission. Every church, every denomination, uh, every quote-unquote tribe of Christians leans one way or the other as to what they emphasize, the word or the deed side. 
But it's not only groups of Christians that do this. It's, it's really each one of us as individuals that leans one way or the other. So I want you to reflect a little bit this morning and this week. Which way do you lean? Do you personally lean more to the word side of mission or to the deed side of mission? And if you were prone to be lopsided, if you were prone to be imbalanced in one way or the other, which way would that be? About 45 years ago, a missionary and a scholar named Samuel Moffat shared these really wise words. He said this, Finding enough food, water, and oil, or even justice to keep this world going, and saying that that is enough, is like throwing a life preserver to a man who has fallen overboard from an ocean liner, but not bothering to stop and pick him up. It may keep him from drowning, but he will still die from the wind or the sun or the sharks. He goes on to say this. This is not to say that, that it is no part of the rescue to throw him the life preserver. It may be the only thing that keeps him alive to be rescued. But what finally counts is picking him up and taking him aboard. So with our mission, anything less than salvation from sin and incorporation into the family of God, his church, is what another author would call the false presence of the kingdom. And Moffat concludes by saying, there is a deeper hunger than the physical, a hunger and a thirst that only Christ can satisfy. Here's why I so appreciate Moffat's words, Moffat's quote. The offense of the gospel, and there's an offense to the gospel, increasingly so, it seems, in our cultural moment. The exclusive claims of Jesus and therefore the Christian faith. Uh, how the way of Jesus will point to priorities and will point to practices of our world and say those are objectively wrong. That means that there has been and there will always be strong temptation for the people of God to remain silent, to perhaps serve, to be part of social action, but to neglect words and clarity about who Jesus actually is. And this is, as Moffat says, to throw a life preserver to someone who's drowning without actually stopping to pick them up. It is to treat the symptoms of sin in a fallen world without offering the real remedy to the curse of sin itself, which is and only ever will be a restored relationship with God through faith in the work of Christ. Moffat refers to this, he quotes another author and says, this is the false presence of the kingdom. And I think he is spot on with that assessment, the false presence of the kingdom. I remember reading an article uh, a few years back about how our primary calling, our primary mission as God's people is to help others experience the kingdom of God. And that sounds great, and there's a lot of truth in it, but the word choice there is really important. Because the language of Scripture, when we read through the Word of God, the language of Scripture pertaining to the kingdom of God is not merely the language of experiencing the kingdom. It's entering the kingdom. It's inheriting the kingdom. We enter, we are to enter the kingdom of God. And since that only happens through trusting and through obeying Jesus, we must be people who use words to proclaim and to compel and to invite others into God's kingdom. However, for those who only emphasize the word, there's something else critical to see here. If deeds without words, if that is the false presence of the kingdom, then see here in Matthew 9 in the example of Jesus that the genuine presence of the kingdom always carries words and deeds together. That Jesus did not only proclaim the gospel, but he healed every disease, he healed every affliction. Why did he do that? Because disease and affliction are effects of sin. 
And because in the fullness of God, in the fullness of the kingdom of God, as we sang about even this morning, when the world is fully reconciled to him, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more affliction. And so by healing those diseases, by healing those afflictions, Jesus is enacting the kingdom of God in the present day. He's giving people a genuine taste, a genuine experience of God's kingdom here on earth as it will fully one day be in heaven. So if all we do is proclaim the kingdom with our words and we fail to enact it with our lives, we are likewise incomplete and lacking in our pursuit of mission. And what we understand from not only this passage, from the the totality of scripture, is that to faithfully carry out the comprehensive mission of God, we must both enact the kingdom so that others might experience it and proclaim the kingdom so that others might actually enter it themselves. If that's mission's means, second, let's talk about mission's motive. Verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lack of courage is one reason that we tend to falter in our pursuit of mission. Uh, The gospel is offensive, the gospel is unwelcomed, and so we shrink back. But in light of this text, I'm convinced that there is a deeper, more fundamental reason that we falter, and it's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of compassion. The word compassion, it's a conjunction of, of two root words. Come, meaning with, and passion. But not passion the way we largely use it in English and American vernacular, meaning desire or enthusiasm. The original, now largely antiquated meaning of the word passion is what? Suffering. Suffering. So to have compassion for another person is to suffer with them. And this is the heart of Jesus for people. It's the heart of Jesus for you. Jesus looks out on the crowds and his first response is a response of compassion. Not condemnation or judgment, though he is well within his right to do that. Not distanced, not calloused, not indifferent, but willing to enter into the suffering of the people who he sees. To suffer in their place, to take their burdens upon himself, and we know ultimately to do that to the point of suffering and dying in their place as their substitute. Jesus sees here how the leaders of the people of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they've neglected, they've failed in their responsibilities. And how that failure has left the people, the crowds, vulnerable. And how it's left them helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. The Puritan Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, The scribes and Pharisees filled people with vain notions, burdened them with the traditions of the elders, deluded them into many mistakes. While they were not instructed in their duty, nor acquainted with the extent and spiritual nature of the divine law, therefore they fainted. And he says this, For what spiritual health and life and vigor can there be in those souls that are fed with husks and ashes instead of the bread of life? What possible vigor could there be in someone's life if that's all they get and they don't actually get the bread of life? And oh, that we would have the eyes and the heart of Jesus Christ for people in our own pursuit of mission. That we would perceive, as we look out into this world, how harassed and how helpless and how hopeless people are outside the kingdom of God. It won't often look that way because people get hardened. 
But below that hardened exterior, there is a helplessness. There is a harassedness. There is a hopelessness in people that we are meant to perceive the way Jesus did. And often instead, in our self-righteousness or in our jealousy, we condemn and we distance ourselves. But the example of Jesus, the mission of God, which is only and ever the foundation and basis for our own pursuit of mission, it's always compelled by compassion. Coming close to people, suffering with people. I don't have to tell you this, because if you're paying attention at all, you already know this to be true. There is a severe shortage of genuine compassion in our world today. There's no shortage of moral outrage. Uh, There's no shortage of problems and suffering in the world. There's a shortage of genuine compassion, though. And there's not enough time to fully explore that in our time this morning. But suffice it to say this, if you reflect on your own life, and you would say that this rhythm of grace, mission, is, is largely absent from your life, underneath whatever other reasons there might be for that, I think if you're honest, you will find a lack of compassion. If there's no pursuit of mission in our lives, it's because we lack compassion. And if we're imbalanced in the way that we pursue mission, it's also because there's a hole in our compassion. If we love the word side of mission, but we neglect the deed side of mission, the hole in our compassion is for people's present suffering in this life. And we need to ask God to give us compassion for people's present suffering. If on the other side, we love the deed side of mission, but we neglect the word side, that's a lack of compassion for people's eternity. We might care about their suffering now, but care too little about life for them in the world to come. Holistic compassion for others is what propels the comprehensive mission of God. Anything less and any other motivation for our mission is something of our own creation. Third, let's talk about the mission's math. The mission's math. Verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Jesus tells his disciples, there aren't enough laborers to keep up with the harvest. There are many, in other words, who need and even want to know the good news of the kingdom of God, but there's a shortage of people who will proclaim and who will enact that kingdom among them. And so if you like formulas, if it's helpful for your brain to see it this way, you can write it out like this. The mission's math is that harvest greater than sign laborers. Harvest is greater than the laborers. If we're honest, though, most of us don't believe that. And actually, what we do is we tend to invert the math completely. That the laborers are greater than the harvest. Here's what I mean. We often tend to believe, we're prone to believe, that the shortage is in the harvest. And that the world that we live in is so lost that there really aren't that many people out there who will one day repent of their sin and trust in the finished work of Christ and enter the kingdom of God. I know that because I'm tempted to believe that. I'm tempted to believe that in my vocation, which is to proclaim this and to get paid for doing it. In what's becoming increasingly post-Christian culture, it feels like most people that I cross paths with in any given day have already heard at least some of the basic core truths about who Jesus is, and they've made up their mind. If they're going to believe it, they already do. Or maybe there's a few people that are like right on the edge of considering it and maybe they'll come to faith and come to believe this. Or there's people who grew up in the church but they've been away from the church for a long time but they're thinking about coming back. Outside of that though, it can feel at times like this pursuit of mission 
is largely going to be fruitless and futile even. I think it's important to acknowledge this. Mission in a post-Christian world is hard. And it is dramatically different than mission for these first century disciples. They were proclaiming, as Jesus sent them out, the mystery of God, the fullness of it, in a way that had never been known and never been heard before. And so it often takes a lot more time, it often takes a lot more conversation and relationship for someone in a post-Christian cultural context to come to faith than it does for someone in a context that's completely unfamiliar with Jesus. And as we think about that, and as we reflect on our own pursuit of mission in our lives, um, what that means for us is that our pursuit of mission must include a rediscovery of practices like biblical hospitality, of really inviting people into our lives and not just telling them a message. Now, there's a great new book by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. There's actually a few copies of it available um, back uh, in near where our art is displayed there. Um, and there's a great reflection that our very own Rachel Dimsky wrote about that book. Uh, I would encourage you to read that, and I'll send that out in some links this week in an email. Uh, it'd be well worth your time and your consideration uh, to read that book, or at least to read Rachel's reflection on that book. But in terms of the math, the mission's math, consider this. Amid the difficulties of mission in our context, God has raised up millions and millions of more laborers more followers of Jesus than probably the first century disciples could even have fathomed there ever would be on the face of the earth. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that by virtually any calculation, in the last 150 years, there has been greater mission work and more conversions to Christ than in the preceding 1,800 years combined. Even with that huge increase in laborers, I'm convinced that the mission's math still holds true. What Jesus said still holds true, that there is still a plentiful harvest, but that the shortage is not in the harvest, but is in the laborers. There's an organization called the Joshua Project that seeks to keep track of this. And according to their research, there remain today in our world more than 7,000 unreached people groups. And of the estimated 7.6 billion people alive on the planet today, 3.14 billion classify as unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So clearly, that's a lot of reason, that's a lot of motive for us to be involved in global mission. Uh, and I hope that as a church, as we continue to grow and to mature as a church family, we'll get the privilege of seeing and sending more and more people to participate in that global work. But what most American Christians don't realize is that behind India and behind China, the United States hosts the third largest number of unreached people groups in the entire world. So whether it's among a post-Christian culture or it's among the unreached people that are on our doorstep, mission is not just a global pursuit. It's really meant to be an everyday local pursuit in our own workplaces, in our own neighborhoods, in our own schools. And another huge implication of this is that wherever you land politically, the motive of mission, the math of God's mission, must shape our perspective on immigration. It must shape our perspective on immigration. And that's because, as disciples of Jesus, our primary allegiance is to the present and coming kingdom of God. And when God 
Think about this way. This is not the way you will see this framed anywhere else. Think about this, though. When God, by whatever means he uses, brings the plentiful harvest to our doorstep, not that you shouldn't have other responses to that and consider things deeply and thoughtfully, but your primary response as a citizen of the kingdom of God should be to rejoice. To rejoice that in our reluctance or in our inability or for whatever other reason we don't go to the unreached peoples of the world, God brings them to us. According to a 2015 survey uh, conducted by LifeWay Research, only 12% of evangelical Christians say that the Bible is their primary influence on the way that they think about immigration. 12%. And if any of those 12% use Romans chapter 13 the way it's been used by officials in our government over the past several days, those shouldn't count in the 12% either. Romans 13, and I care deeply about this particular aspect of it, because if we lose the integrity of the word of God, what else do we have? Romans 13 is written to persecuted, marginalized Christians for how to cope, how to deal under the oppressive Roman Empire. It is not written to Christians in positions of power who have the ability to influence and change the law. And the scriptures, the authoritative recounting of the mission of God, it must be our primary influence for how we think about this. So I ask you this morning, is it yours? Is it yours? Fox News makes a terrible substitute. CNN makes a terrible substitute. So do fear and our idols of security and comfort. Jesus had compassion on the crowds who were helpless and harassed. God's heart is for the oppressed and the marginalized. God calls his people to welcome the stranger because they were strangers and exiles. We are strangers and exiles in this world. I know it's so much more complex than this. It's so much more complex than an either-or choice. But for clarity of thought this morning, if and when it comes down to America versus the kingdom of God, we choose the kingdom of God every single time. Every single time. As a citizen of this nation, it's good and right to want reasonable and enforceable laws on immigration. As a citizen of God's kingdom, may your heart first break with compassion and may your soul first rejoice with hope that the plentiful harvest comes to us. In this day, in this time, in this place, let the world hear plainly and let the world hear clearly that the people of God treasure God's kingdom most. Lastly, missions mandate. Verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As Jesus' disciples, our missional mandate is to pray and to be sent. To pray and to be sent. Jesus says, pray earnestly that God would send laborers. And as we think about this, some of the most potent fuel for praying this way is what we're already seeing in this text. That God himself is a missional God. That he's already at work doing this. It's compassion for people, both their present and their eternity. It's this vexation about the math, that there's a plentiful harvest but not enough laborers. And it's hope that into the gap between the laborers and the harvest, God has and is providing great opportunities for us to be part of advancing that mission. Let those things fuel your prayer life as you pray for God to continue this work. As the adage goes, may we not just speak to people about God, but may we speak to God about people. There's a deep and powerful work that only the Spirit of God can do in hardened human hearts. 
And if we're already prone, as I'm inclined at times, to be cynical about the futility of mission, that there aren't really that many people, there's not really that plentiful of a harvest, nothing will cement you and entrench you in that cynicism like attempting to pursue mission by your own strength, like attempting to pursue mission by your own efforts. Instead, cry out to God. Ask to join him in the mission he is already accomplishing. And then, in addition to our prayers, we are to be sent ourselves as the laborers. And that's not as obvious in this text, but consider the original audience. Jesus is saying this to who? To his disciples, and immediately after this, the next verse, Matthew 10, 1, he sends out the 12 disciples across the towns and villages, just like he's been doing. It's the same thing in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus repeats this same teaching. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, and in the next verse, he sends out not only the 12, but the 72, saying, go your way, behold, I am sending you. So would you hear and would you believe that this morning? Especially if your paradigm has been that mission is the job of pastors or missionaries or other vocational professionals especially if you've restricted your own involvement in mission to prayer or to giving financially. See that Jesus calls not only the 12, but the 72, all who would come after him, all who would follow him, to pray that God would raise up laborers, and then the laborers that God raises up are them. So what does that look like for you in your life right now? Where, where are you encouraged? Where are you seeing fruitfulness in your pursuit of mission? Or on the other hand, where are you stuck These kinds of reflections, these kinds of questions and conversation should be regular uh, and should be normal when we get together with other people who are Christians. Not only regular and normal, I would submit to you this morning, they should be really life-giving and energizing and supportive and encouraging because God has a mission and that mission has a church. And as, a ch- as that church, we get the privilege of coming alongside one another in pursuit of this mandate, of this mission of God. Because God is a missional God, may we look to Jesus as our example in mission. I want you to see that this morning in Matthew 9. Jesus is our model and our example for mission. He proclaimed and he enacted the kingdom of God. He had compassion on those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the plentiful harvest and the lack of laborers, and then he spent this disproportionate amount of time pouring his life into a few disciples who would carry that mission forward when his earthly work was done. But don't just see Jesus as that example this morning. The mission of God is not just our mandate. It is not just our model. The mission of God is our very life and our very salvation. And Jesus isn't just our example. Jesus is the yes and amen to the mission of God. His compassion was and is for us. So may we rejoice in the mission of God that has pursued and rescued you, that has pursued and rescued us, and then in the strength that God provides. May we pray and may we be sent as laborers who proclaim and who enact the kingdom of God. Amen. We pray for us. God, it is only because this is your mission that we have the audacity to think about our place in it. And we first remember, and especially now as we come to this table, our primary place in this is to be recipients of your mission. We are those who, on whom you have had compassion, whom you have loved, 
whom you have pursued and rescued by your death and resurrection. And so as we come to this table now, remind us of that great work you have done and are doing. Stir up a a fresh zeal in our hearts that we not only get swept up into that work and we enter the kingdom of God ourselves, we get to be part of seeing it advance in the world. And open our eyes and our ears and our minds and give us, just give us the ability to not only see the world as it is, but to to consider what, through your Spirit's work among us and in us and through us, might happen here in this place as well as to the ends of the earth. It is by your work that we are saved, and it is your work that we want to continue in the world. We pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen.